0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Jesus, all honor and all glory and all power is yours. We don't give it to you, it's already yours. We just acknowledge that the world will give you the glory and the power and the honor. Lord, thank you for this community. Thank you for this new year. Thank you for um, the way you're raising up leaders, um, the way you're equipping people, the way you're equipping your church. We are a body, a collective. And together, um, joined together, infused by your Holy Spirit, we are a representative of Jesus. To Brooklyn. We don't take that lightly, but we also have no idea what that means. So reveal that to us, shape us, mold us. We give you permission, both as a community and as individuals, we open up our hands and we say, shape us. We love you, Lord. We ask that you inhabit our praise today. It's in your name, amen. All right, we are crowds and disciples. What does that mean? It's kind of ironic, and you'll realize in a second, because essentially what we're saying when we say we are crowds and disciples um, is that we try to keep the line fluid between insiders and outsiders. We don't wanna use insider language. And we say that by using very insider language, which is my bad, Um, but I didn't realize it at the point, but now we just gotta go with it. So what do I mean when I say we are crowds and disciples? Well, a little context. So in the New Testament, there are four accounts of Jesus's life. Uh, They're called the Gospels. They were written by four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and yeah, John. Love it. And what they do is they detail Jesus's life, or more specifically, Jesus's ministry. So they kind of skip the first 30 years, uh, which is a a mysterious point in the life of Jesus, this Jewish carpenter. What was he doing? I guess he was practicing carpentry. We don't know. History silent. But then for a period of one to three years, this guy was very active. Um, He traveled the Judean countryside and surrounding regions. He preached, and apparently he preached very powerfully. Um, He was a really good teacher of the Jewish law. Um, So Jews were really, really confounded and um, compelled by his teaching, the way he opened up a law in a way they had never seen, and he healed people. So people with leprosy were healed of their leprosy. People who were blind or given sight, um, he healed. And as these authors detail the ministry of Jesus, you find that there are these sub-characters, these groups of people who are following Jesus where they go. And there are a couple, but for our purposes, there are two. And you know what they are. There's one group that the narrators call the crowds. And there's another group called the disciples. Now, what's the difference between the two? Uh, Not much, actually. The crowds, in essence, don't know what they think about Jesus yet. They're compelled by him. So as rumors spread throughout the Judean countryside that Jesus is going to another town, this miracle worker, this teacher, crowds hear that and they swarm. They are compelled. They want to be healed. They want to hear a good teaching. What are these rumors? Are they true? They don't know what they think about him, but they're compelled by him. Disciples, on the other hand, have sort of crossed this invisible threshold. They know what they think about him. They're accepting his claims about himself. The rumors are circulating that this guy is the Messiah, which is another insider word um, within the Jewish culture, which basically means the savior that God is going to send to to vindicate the Jewish people, to throw off all foreign oppression and to lift them up as the exemplar, the special people and all nations realize that. And they believe it's gonna come through one person, through a Messiah. And the disciples are those who say, this is it. They're calling Jesus the Messiah. We're following this guy as our teacher, but they're just really bad at it. So that's the difference between the two. This invisible threshold of, how someone views Jesus. Now, there are also similarities between both groups. One, I kind of hinted at it, both really don't understand Jesus, but want to. Both groups don't really get what he's about. At least the crowds are honest about it. They say, because I don't know who you are fully, you know, I'm just, arm's distance. The disciples, on the other hand, they've gone all in. They're like, we're following you. You're the Messiah. But throughout this story, we read page after page of Jesus sort of redefining that word. He's like, I am the savior, but not the way you think. And they keep stumbling and they keep having like brain freeze. And we're like, wait, what? You're, you're doing it this way? You're, you're talking with that person? Aren't you going to, when are you going to throw off the powers of Rome? I will, but it's gonna come in a different way than you expect. Both don't understand Jesus, but are trying to. And another similarity is both are attempting to use Jesus. Both are. The crowds, again, very honestly, they wanna get healed. Their lives are hard. They want to go to him and they're desperate to touch him. They're desperate, please. Like there's one story of a group of friends, of this guy who's a paralytic. And they are so desperate for their friend to get healed that they cut open the roof of some person's house and they lower their friend down on a mat. Like they're not, they don't care who Jesus is. They've heard he heals, they want that. They are trying to use Jesus. The disciples though, are also trying to use Jesus. And I just mentioned it. They think that the Messiah is going to take the world back by force. It's, it's, it's likened to a politician that's about to make it big. And everyone's sort of scrambling to say, hey, which cabinet position are we gonna get? They're riding the coattails of this guy who's about to be lifted up. There's actually one story where uh, the disciples, um, they're walking with Jesus. They're going to Capernaum, I think. And, um, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. the disciples are behind. And um, uh, Jesus hears what they're talking about, but he pretends like he doesn't. And the disciples are actually arguing amongst themselves, but they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're arguing like, hey, who's, which one of us is the best of the 12 in this ranking order? Who ranks highest? Interestingly, there's another story where Jesus, uh, he's talking to the crowds and he says, if you wanna follow me, you gotta come die with me. And later after that, Peter, like a shrewd political advisor, pulls you know, his candidate aside and says, no, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. And Jesus looks at him and goes, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. Both the disciples and the crowds are not really wanting Jesus for himself. They're trying to use him. The disciples see him as the golden ticket to power, to glory, glory for themselves, glory for Israel, but to glory. I bet if if you were to examine your own life, if you're here today and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you examined your your own life, you'd probably see that somewhere along the line, when you sort of got in this whole relationship, you did it with selfish motives. I definitely did. I became a Christian um, at age 11 in the First Baptist Church of Cary, North Carolina, because my youth pastor started talking about hell. And I said, I do not wanna go there. So wait, so this guy's the way I avoid that place? Done, sign me up, follower, right? I didn't know anything about Jesus. I mean, I knew he made me feel good. I knew he seemed really kind, really gracious. I like that, but I didn't wanna go there. I was using him to avoid this place. It's, it's not unlike marriage in a lot of ways. Uh, Ann and I just celebrated our three-year anniversary, which I look and I think, man, three years, that's awesome. And then I think, People who do 30 and 60, good gracious. I'm just kidding, babe, I love you, I love you. (laughs) But why do we get married at first? Because the person makes us feel good, don't they? We love them, like we enjoy being around them, but they also do something for us. That's what draws us, that's what compels us, and then as we get into it, we realize those feelings change, they're not the same and it starts being, well, what is love? If it's not self-motivated, if it's not about me, is it really just about the other person? We do the same thing. I would dare say, and I've had many conversations with with many of you, and this is in my own life as well. We've said similar things of me and God aren't in a good place. I get it, absolutely. I would, if I pushed on that a little bit, I bet what might come out of why you and God aren't in a good place is because you had an expectation of how God was going to be God, and he didn't uphold his end of the bargain, right? He he is God, but your life hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. Your career hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. Um, You're not experiencing the same emotional vitality as you did at first, and you're wondering, well, what is this relationship? See, all of us, when we come to this Jesus, we're compelled, but at first it's very self-motivated. We are all trying to use him. The crowds and disciples, all I'm trying to point out is that crowds and disciples are more similar than they are different. There's a lot more in common between crowds and disciples than there is difference. Both the crowds And the disciples want control over Jesus in their own way. They want to control him. They want to control the story. They want to control what he's going to do. But instead, Jesus doesn't offer them control. He kind of eludes their grasp. He offers them himself. Jesus does not offer them control. He offers them himself, which is to say he offers them love. This is not a story, friends, about control. This is a story about love. One of the best examples of this, which still boggles my mind, is in Acts 2. So Acts, the the, the book of Acts, tells the story of the first church. So Jesus does his ministry. He ends up dying on a cross, which blows all of our minds. And then he's raised from the dead. He gives his spirit to his followers. He ascends to the Father, and he gives his spirit to his followers, his disciples. And on the day of Pentecost, 120 of them are in upper room praying. And the spirit comes upon them and we're told that tongues of fire rest on their head and they, they start speaking in languages which are not their native language. And at that time, amazingly, in Jerusalem, there were all sorts of Jews from all across the empire. They were there for the festival. And so when these new Jesus followers who were just given the spirit start speaking in various languages, all these various Jews hear the gospel being spoken in their own language. They hear it and they're like, what are, these are, you know, Jews, they don't speak my language. And yet they hear the praises of Jesus being spoken in their own language, such that we're told 3,000 became Jesus followers that day. And then amazingly, the story stops right there. And I want to know, if you're Peter, if you're the 12, if you're the disciples, why didn't you mobilize right? Why didn't you be like, okay, you're baptized, you're Jesus followers, let's mobilize, let's do this, let's come together. The revolution begins. No, what happens to those 3,000? I assume they all went home. What? Jesus, what? why didn't you seek control? It's not about control, not the way you imagine it's about control. There's something else going on here. See, in the adventure, in this adventure that we're all sort of looking at and studying and and interested in, there are clear steps of faith. I'm not against clear steps of faith. When Jesus shows up to the, the disciples, before their disciples, when many of them are fishermen, what does he do? He says, follow me. He doesn't give them a treatise about who he is. He just looks them in the eyes and say, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they do. Clear step of faith not an intellectual step of faith, a tangible embodied step of faith. The Lord's table, a huge step of faith. But what do we say here at Hope? We say that this table is a symbol of our heart's confession that Jesus is Lord, but it's open to everyone free of cost. We're not gonna police the table. Know what it represents, know whose table it is, but if you wanna partake, come and partake. Baptism. Another clear step of faith for those who say, Jesus is Lord, I need to follow him. You need to be baptized. You need to go under the waters, join the rest of the community, die to the old self, come alive with Jesus. These are clear steps of faith. And I'm not saying that these are wrong. The issue with these steps of faith for, for humans and for church throughout the history is that you and I, we attach social status to these steps don't we? We draw markers of distinction and we say, well, the people who are saved, whatever that means, are here and the people who are not are there. And then there's another group of people and they speak in tongues and they're over here and then there's another group. It's not about the steps of faith for us. It's about the status that has comes with it. We, like the disciples, argue about who's the greatest, don't we? And what is status? Status is simply modes of control. Status are the way that we assign scorecards so we know how we're ranking up against one another. Status, underneath that, is just fear that we're gonna die. (laughs) Fear of death and what happens after that. That's all it is. And us trying to um, fend off the inevitable and trying to hold Jesus by the the throat and say you have to save me because look, I did this. It's fear underneath. And the crazy thing about this story is as the disciples time and time again and the crowds attempt to use Jesus, attempt to control him, attempt to um, use him as a prop for their fear, Jesus time and time again eludes it and he sort of inverts it. So in that story, after the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, we read in Mark's gospel, and this is what it reads. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, let him be last and servant of everyone. And he took a child and he put the child in the midst of them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. In our own day, if Jesus were to do something like this among us, we would be scandalized to a degree. But in their day, in this ancient period, the scandal would have been insane. Children were like tadpoles. You had a lot of them because you knew a bunch were gonna die. They had no value until they became adults. You sort of had a bunch, you're like, well, I mean, hopefully you survive, but again, a lot are gonna die from disease. So once you're able to contribute to this world, then you have status, then you have a voice. Not unlike we have those groups as well. Those groups who, uh, this name for the children who, who don't contribute anything to society, but instead are a drain on our resources. Some names are the homeless. Some names are the disabled. Those who really don't add anything to society, instead they just drain us. And Jesus would take them and put them in the center of us and say, Here's the kingdom. Surprise. Become like this. The disciples in the crowds, that is to say you and me, want control. Jesus offers them a child. Weakness, vulnerability, zero status, which is to say he offers them freedom. He offers them love. He offers them himself. He offers them a glorious, mysterious adventure, which we call relationship. The distinction, friends, all I'm trying to say, the distinction is not between crowds and disciples as many churches have made it. The distinction is between control and love. And if you wanna understand love, if you wanna understand Jesus, you need to go to the ones with the least status. You need to listen. They have the most to teach you about this kingdom. I remember, I mean, this is a lesson we never fully learn. We'll learn it and unlearn it and be reminded of it and mess it up for the rest of our lives. I remember one time I learned it in a very powerful way um, was when I was a counselor. I, uh, I, I, as I told you before, you know, I grew up at the YMCA, I was a counselor in a summer camp. And uh, there was one, one summer, I was a counselor of the middle school huddle. And um, there was a student in my huddle whose name was Paul, and Paul, had Down syndrome. Um, I pray that you get the chance to be friends with a person with Down syndrome at some point. It is, um, to be honest, it's uncomfortable at first. There are many times where the, the social cues are lost, where you don't know how to respond. If you've ever received a hug from someone with Down syndrome. You'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, the first time it happens, they, they sort of don't have an awareness of physical space or um, the way that intimacy comes from trust, right? We become more touchy with one another the more we trust someone. So the first time I meet you, I'm gonna shake your hand, right? The next time I meet you, maybe I'll give you a little clasp and a hug or something. When I really trust you and love you, then we'll go full in, right? You know what I'm talking about. With Paul, first time you meet him, arms around the neck pull you close, cheek to cheek, and linger there for an unnaturally long time. (laughs) And you're there and you're like, what do I do? (laughs) And then if you're courageous enough, you give in to it. If you're courageous enough, you allow yourself to be hugged by Paul. Paul understands the gospel. I remember one time uh, that year, since it was a middle school huddle, uh, the kids they were noticing the opposite sex, right? And Paul and I were eating lunch together, and uh, he looked at me and he goes, "Hey Russ, can we go on a date to Chick-fil-A? Because Chick-fil-A is where you go on a date as a middle schooler." And uh, Immediately sensing scandal, I said, no, 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 Paul, you and I can't go on a date. We're friends. That's not the way it works. And his eyes just sort of like looked so confused and he started crying. And I didn't realize that I had hurt him that bad then. I thought I had helped him, but it wasn't until about a year later that for some reason in my prayers, God revealed to me. And was basically like, you fool. You don't understand. You don't go on a date with someone because you're friends. For what other reason do you go on a date? Paul loved you and he was communicating that he loved you by asking you on a date and you hurt him. No, no, no. See, you thought you were trying to save him and the opposite is true. Paul was trying to save you. Paul was teaching you about me and the kingdom. If we wanna learn about who Jesus is, we need to surround ourselves with people like Paul. So all I'm saying that if the line is not crowds and disciples, but rather it's between control and love. What that means for Hope Brooklyn is we are gonna be a people who minimize control and maximize love. That's what we're gonna be about. We're gonna work really hard to minimize the ways that we control as a way to abate our fear. And we're gonna try to maximize the ways that we love in a reckless and fearless sort of way. That means lots of things, three things off the top of my head. That means we must be a people content with not knowing who's what or what's what because we're too busy trying to know Jesus more. We must be a people not worried about who's where and where's where, and even speaking very honestly about the story and the parts of the story that don't make sense. We must be a people content with saying that doesn't make sense. I don't know because we're too busy following Jesus more. We must be a people who when we talk about the story, talk honestly. When we talk about the crucifixion, say that somehow in some mysterious way, what we're acknowledging is that on the cross, God abandons God. God is the ultimate security. And yet on the cross, God abandons God. I don't know what to do with that. At the center of our story, we are stripped of all meaning as Peter Rollins says, all security. Now, of course, yes, Jesus is raised from the dead, but we don't know what's gonna happen in that moment. So we must be a people content with not knowing who's what because we're too busy trying to know Jesus more. Secondly, we must be a people who reject clicks, making ourselves available for new surprises. Now, I'm not saying reject deep, transformative relationships. Inevitably, you get in a group of people and you meet. Some, you're gonna have a connection to more than others. I'm not saying don't pursue Deep relationships. What I am saying, though, is that in the life of a community, there will come a point where a group of four, five, however big the group is, a really solid group, they'll be presented with someone new. They'll be presented with a couple new people. They'll be presented with change and they'll have a choice in that moment. Do we reject that change? Do we sort of retreat into ourselves and what we have now? or do we make ourselves available to the possibility of the, my, the mysterious, of what might happen if we let someone else in? And see, we, we reject the change and we choose clicks, why? Because we think love is zero sum. It's just like when the parents have a second child. I don't have children yet, this is what I've heard. When you have the first child, you say something along the lines of, I had no idea I could love another human the way I love this child, right? And then when you have the second and you're about to go to the hospital and the first gets really scared all of a sudden, why do they get scared? Because they say, hey, mommy and daddy are about to bring back a second. Does that mean they're going to transfer some of the love off of me and put it on the second one, right? And you say, no, that's not the way love works. It's not zero sum. Amazingly, I find, mommy and daddy find that they're capable of even more love for you and for your new brother or sister than I thought possible. Love multiplies, love compounds. See, when fear says, no, reject what's new, don't make yourself available for surprises, retreat in, that's when it starts getting toxic. But when we make ourselves available for new surprises of God, we find our love, the possibilities of friendship, compound, multiply. To be a Christian is to be part of an adventure. And the invitation of Jesus is to be part of a movement. So we must be a people content with not knowing who's what because we're too busy trying to know Jesus more. We must be a people who reject clicks in the name of making ourselves available to the new and scary, mysterious surprises. And last, and go with me with this one, I'm gonna use a dirty word, but trust me, Now I got your attention. Yeah, just a dirty word. We must be a people who embody the gospel's imperialism. I know, ooh, the I word in a post-colonial world. I don't know if we're really post-colonial personally, but that's another conversation. We must be a people who embody the gospel's form of imperialism. See, you and I have this idea that salvation is individualistic, don't we? That we are presented with this story, and then we make a decision, right, to accept this Jesus or not. And though that's faintly true, it's so much bigger and more robust than that. Salvation, according to the Jesus story, is nothing less than the reign of God. Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And as he ascended to the Father, he told his followers, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. God has already saved the world through Jesus. It's already saved. The world is already saved. Now we might protest with how he saved the world and that's fair, but we cannot protest that according to the story, excuse me, the world is already saved. It's already his. I'm not a Christian and this is important. I'm not a Christian because this story makes my life better. In many places, it doesn't. It makes it worse. I'm not a Christian because I think the story is beautiful, though I do. I'm a Christian because I think the story's true. I think Jesus is alive, and I think the world is his, that Jesus has reconciled the world back to God. I don't think Jesus is one item on a religious menu of other options. I think Jesus owns the whole restaurant though we don't see it yet. That's the reality. It's his restaurant, it's his world already through the cross. Salvation is not individualistic, salvation is total. The world's already his. Rather, we're just waking up to that, so to speak. People are waking up to the truth that Jesus already is sovereign. As Stanley Hauerwas says, in Jesus we meet, not a presentation of basic ideas about God, world, and humanity. In Jesus we meet an invitation to join up, to become part of a movement, a people. So to continue the metaphor, when I say we embody the gospel's form of imperialism, we embody an imperialism of love, not control. See, the reason we like that, we don't like that word, and for good reason is because all the modes of imperialism we've ever seen are modes of control. One nation or one group of people thinking they know better than another, it's really about their own power, so they exercise power over, they annex, and usually, I mean, most often than not, through military force. They take it through violence, right? That's the imperialism of control. Through violence, I take this and I subjugate you to us, our culture, our way of life, our values, whatever. But Jesus' imperialism, the gospel's imperialism, the imperialism of love is not an obsessive, coercive project to make someone else a Christian. Or it's not an obsessive, coercive project to win the culture wars. It's not power over. The imperialism of love is power for, which is to say it's sacrifice. God does not rule creation through coercion, but through a cross. Or as my friend put it so well, he grew up thinking that being a Christian are all the things I'm willing to fight for. When in reality, to be a Christian, is not about what I'd fight for, but what I'd die for. And the imperialism of love has nothing to do with annexing more land or claiming people for anything. The imperialism of love, is said, I'd rather die for you than fight back. Down is up. <laughs> The imperialism of love is not power over, but power for. Or as Tertullian, who was a Christian and he was a a Roman historian who became a Christian, when he recounts how the Christians were in the Colosseum and they were fed uh, to wild animals, he has this famous line where he couldn't get out of his head the way the Christians died. He says, look how they love one another. As they're being unjustly, killed because they were blamed by the emperor Nero um, for crimes that they didn't do. They're blessing the people who are killing them. They're blessing them as they're dying. Look how they love one another. And so Tertullian will write later on, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The gospel spreads not through us fighting for something. The gospel spreads through us dying for everything. You get me? how much are we willing to be for another, to be for a space, to be for a people? But see, you and I, we reject Jesus's understanding of imperialism, of how the gospel spreads, because like the disciples, for us, imperialism implies power over, not power for. Jesus announced the kingdom not by grabbing the palace, but by healing the sick by gathering the outcasts, by proclaiming their creator's forgiveness, by even accepting the world's unjust verdict of his death and going willingly, not arguing back, not fighting back. See, for us in the world's kingdoms, the pawns die for the king so the king can gain more. But in Jesus's kingdom, he says, it's not that way, it's the other way. In my kingdom, the king dies for the pawns and then invites the pawns to die for more pawns. That's how it spreads, through love. We as a people, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we should be so overwhelmed for our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors who don't know Jesus. But we shouldn't be overwhelmed for them because they don't know Jesus. We should be overwhelmed for them because we know Jesus. And to know him is to be so overwhelmed with how good this God is. How can you not love others to the point of sacrifice? How can you not be for them? This power for, this ability to use our agency as humans for others should be our operative nature. And another way of saying this, it's the imperialism of Paul. And not Paul the apostle writer, but Paul, my Paul. It's the imperialism of one who meets you for the first time and throws their arms, saying, you are the greatest human being who's ever walked this earth. It's the imperialism that says, let's go on a date together. No agenda, no reason, just you're alive, I'm alive. You're beautiful, I wanna know more about you. You are created by my God. Now you might not know that yet or you might not even believe that yet, I don't care, but I know that, and so I wanna know you. What's your story, what's your history? Can we be a people who ask others on dates with no agenda? Because we're so overwhelmed that God has already won the world back through Jesus. All of this is just another way of saying we are crowds and disciples because we're refusing to control the narrative. We're refusing to control the story, but we're pushing in to this love that spreads through exercising power for others, not over others. Pushing into this love that says, it's not about what I'd fight for, it's about what I'd die for and I'd die for you. And of course, I can't say that honestly because I don't know I would. <laughs> Why? Because I'm like the disciples, I want power over. So do you. But I'm following Jesus. I'm learning. I'm being presented time again with opportunities. You know one of these new lessons I'm learning, power for Giving my wife back rubs. I hate giving back rubs. <laughs> hate it. She loves it. I don't even like receiving them. It's not like it's like, you know, I don't want to give them, but you give me. It's like, no, no, let's just cancel each other out. No one gives anyone back rubs. (laughs) But she loves receiving him. What if love, power four, it says, yeah, none of this is for me. But I, theoretically, because I married you, love you so much. I am for you so much. And you love receiving back rubs that I do it, even though I don't like it right? And I know it's a trivial example, but that's the seed of what this kingdom is manifested outward, that we're so consumed with thinking about Christ and thinking about you and what you love and what you're afraid of and praying for you and being for you that I don't have time to be for myself. And don't worry, because even though I'm not, I'm sure you're thinking, well, if I'm not going to be for me, who's going to be for me? I am because I'm spending all my time thinking about you as you're spending all your time thinking about them as they're spending all their time, thinking, you know what I mean? That's how it works. I wanna read a passage from a book called Insurrection by Peter Rollins, who I talked about earlier. Um, this is an amazing book, it was recommended by actually Joseph in the communities and I also recommend this book to anyone who wants to read it, but be forewarned, it is, it'll mess with you, okay? So go into it with a, an open mind and ready to be messed with. But he's talking about grace. He's talking about, essentially, this power for. And he gives an example. I don't know if it's a true story or not, it doesn't matter. This is what he writes. There was once a young man called Caleb who was obsessed with gathering up possessions and gaining status. He was so driven by the desire to succeed that from an early age, he managed to become one of the most prominent and influential figures in the city, yet he was not happy with his lot. He worked long hours, he rarely saw his children, and often became irritable at the slightest problem. But more than this, he knew that his lifestyle met with his father's disapproval. His father had himself been a wealthy and influential man in his youth, but he had found such a life shallow and unsatisfactory. As a result, he had turned away from it and in, in an endeavor to embrace a life of simplicity, fellowship, and meditation. Caleb's father had taught him from an early age about the problems that come from seeking material and political influence. And he warned Caleb in the strongest possible way to embrace a life that delves deeply into the beauty of creation, the warmth of friendship, and the inspiration derived from deep and sustained reflection. Caleb's father was an inspiring man, well loved by all. And Caleb could see that his father, while living in a modest way, was at peace with himself and the world in a manner that his friends and colleagues were not. Because of this, Caleb often looked with longing at his father's lifestyle and frequently detested the path that he had personally chosen. Yet despite this, he was still driven to pursue wealth and power. It was true that his father was a happy and contented man, but he was also concerned about his son. And on any occasion when they spent time together, He would criticize Caleb for the life he had chosen. But one day, while Caleb's father was reflecting upon his son's life, a voice from heaven interrupted him, saying, Caleb is also my son, and I love him just the way he is. Caleb's father began to weep as he realized that all these years he had been hurting his son through his disapproval and criticism. So he immediately visited his son's house and offered a heartfelt apology, saying, please never feel that you have to change what you do or who you are. I love you without limit and condition, just as you are. After that day, the father began to take an interest in his son's life again, asking questions about what he was doing and how his work was progressing. But increasingly, Caleb found that he was no longer so interested in working the long hours. Soon he started to skip work in order to spend more time with his family and began to take less interest in what others thought about him. Eventually, Caleb gave up his work entirely and followed in his father's footsteps, realizing that it was only after his father had accepted him unconditionally for who he was that he was able to change and become who he always wanted to be. This is nothing less, says Rollins, than a description of grace. In grace, we are able to accept that we are accepted. And in this very act of knowing that we do not have to change, we discover the ability to change. God has accepted the world through his son. It's his and everyone and everything in it. We know that. And now our task laid upon us is to love the world so deeply, to accept the world, to be for the world so much, not in a obsessive pursuit to change the world, but to witness to the love that has already changed it. To take such interest in others, such love for them, for who they are, that in the process of being loved unconditionally, they realize they didn't need some of the things they needed in the past. And maybe that happens and maybe it doesn't. It doesn't matter, that's not, for our, that's not our concern at all. Our concern, our task, what we've been called by Jesus to do is simply to love, to love, to love, to love. So here's what I wanna do for the next five minutes. Again, the temptation for many of us is to hear the gospel and to receive it intellectually, but that's not what it is. There are tangible, embodied steps of faith that we are invited into. And so to start off 2018, I wanna make us a bit uncomfortable as Paul made me so many years ago. I wanna invite us into a time of prayer. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Here's how it's gonna work. I can already see you guys looking around, like what's gonna happen? Before we come to the Lord's table, we're gonna take five minutes and we're gonna to pray together. We're gonna pray, if you came with someone, maybe team up with them and spend some time praying. If, if you're by yourself and you see someone looking and you wanna pray with them, pray with them. If you'd rather just pray with yourself, pray with yourself. But we're actually gonna spend some time praying about this pillar. What I wanna do, what I want us to do as a community is pray to these three pillars each Sunday and commit ourselves to them. Commit to be the type of community that says we are crowds and disciples. Commit to being a community that says that this faith is not about what I'm gonna fight for, but who I'm willing to die for. And to make it even more specific, I think God does speak to us. I know it's sometimes, what does that mean and what does that look like? I think it's actually there if we silence the voices and if we are willing to trust. So what I wanna ask you to do is when we sort of go in prayer in a minute, I want you to ask God, who is one person? in your life right now, friend, colleague, neighbor, spouse, who is one person that God would say, this type of love that was talked about today, this power for another, this sacrifice for, I want you to pursue them with this in this way. One person. So pray with that. Now, some of you might be s- s- sitting here thinking, I don't know how to pray. Sure you do. Just like when, when uh, Zoe Deschanel told, elf that she didn't know how to sing. And he's like, yeah, you do. Just like talking. You just move your voice up and down and do it a little louder. All right. Everyone prays. You think to yourself, same thing. Just think to God. Do the same stuff, but just address Jesus. Start there. That's a great place to start. We're praying. Who's the one person that God is inviting us to exercise power for? How can Hope Brooklyn be a community that does not pretend like we have it figured out? To be a people who are so busy pursuing Jesus, we don't have time to create status distinctions among us. To be a people, community, that is imperialistic as Paul is, reckless and fearless with our love and acceptance of others, not knowing their history, not keeping them at arm's length, but just going all in for hugs, cheek to cheek with complete strangers. Maybe not complete strangers. Use wisdom, but (laughs) cheek to cheek. I accept you just as you are. Why? Because Jesus is alive and in charge of the world. Because love wins. How can that be us? So, will you take some time? Pair up. It's okay. Push into the awkwardness a little bit and pray together. Let's do that. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.